Jesus had a conversation with all of the ideas converging into the question. What is truth, said he, and turned and walked away. What irony that he's standing in front of one who is the incarnation of truth, the embodiment of truth, and if his intention were honorable, the least he would have done is waited to hear how exactly Jesus would answer the question. Pilate raised the most important question in life, but did not wait for the answer. If we really want the truth, the Bible says when you abide in his word, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If somebody is truly pursuing the truth, the least they ought to do is give Jesus a hearing on what it is he says about life, its essence, and its destiny. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's funny, even when Robbie's not here, I have to follow him still. Um, it's always a tough, it's always a daunting thing to uh, have to speak after Robbie says anything. Robbie could read the phone book and I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Um, but uh, thank you all for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Wonderful to be here under the bluish skies. Uh, fantastic. I, 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 as Pastor Bob was saying, he prayed the rain, rain away, and uh, here we are today. Uh, able to enjoy this wonderful Wednesday evening. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this time with you for quite some time. My name is Abdu Murray. I'm Senior Vice President with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. We're a good friend of Bob's and the other people in the audience as well. So many of you said hello to me when I came in. It feels like I guess he didn't leave Michigan. Somehow uh, this is my church or something. It's very strange, like a church barbecue in my own house. Um, but thanks very much for having me. Well, I'm going to speak on a topic tonight that... Um, in the beginning, it might sound a little gloomy for a sort of a barbecue-ish setting, but I promise you I'm actually quite an optimist. I think there's tons of hope to be had in the midst of a, of a, of a culture that seems to be careening out of control, where it's spiraling, having loosed its chains from the moorings that kept it in some kind of a line or some kind of a straight destination, and now it's sort of going about in all directions. It reminds me of something, speaking about the culture we're currently in, and I, I wrote a book called Saving Truth all about this, but... It reminds me of something that happened to me quite some time ago. I was speaking internationally, and I speak a lot internationally. I travel all over the world. Uh, various, I've been on every continent where human beings uh, live, except for, I actually have had not been to Africa yet and haven't been to Antarctica yet, but I will be joining Africa soon uh, and uh, include that in a place I've been. But I was speaking internationally in this one particular spot, and because I live in Michigan, internationally can mean Canada, which means I can actually drive to that international spot. And in this particular instance, I did. I was able to drive. Now, I'm from Michigan, from the Detroit area, and because of the strangeness of the geography, there's this peninsula in Canada that comes right underneath Detroit. So Canada, strangely enough, is the country to my south. So when I go to Canada, I typically either drive across the Ambassador Bridge or through the Detroit Tunnel once in a while over the Blue Water Bridge. But in this particular instance, I was going to a town called Wallaceburg for an outdoor open-air preaching uh, event. It was evangelistic as well. And um, because of where it was located, I, had to, I couldn't cross the bridge or go through a tunnel. I had to take a car ferry across from a town called Algonac. Now, I'm from the Great Lakes State. 
So the Great Lakes are the largest lakes in the world. They're ocean-sized lakes. And um, when I think car ferry, I think of a ship that can carry 30, 40, 50 cars. That was not this car ferry. This car ferry was smaller than this stage. It was this rickety white thing where the paint was peeling off of it, and it could fit two cars maximum. I sort of half expected the guy to pull me across the river like Lord of the Rings style, you know, with like a rope or something. So I got on, I, I, I parked my car onto the car ferry. He said, don't bother getting out. It's not going to be a long trip. I said, I'm happy not to because it's a super hot morning, and I'll sit in this little car while we go across the river. Well, I'm horrible with directions. I can get lost in my own backyard. So I'm constantly looking at the GPS, which, by the way, has atrophied my sense of direction even more. But I can't get anywhere, so I have to look at this little machine to tell me where I'm going all the time. So I'm obsessively looking at the machine, making sure that when I cross the border, it'll keep the signal of the GPS so I won't get lost when I cross into Canada. Well, I happened to look down at the GPS at the exact moment the ship left the dock. So I didn't see us leave the dock. But because I was in the car, the suspension of the car and the mass of the car absorbed the energy of us leaving. So I didn't feel us leave the dock either. So as soon as we left, about five, six seconds after that, I had that strange feeling when I looked up that strange feeling you've had, you know, where you sat at the intersection and there's a bus next to you and the bus goes forward and you're not quite sure if it's going forward or you're going backward. And what do you do at that moment? First of all, you panic and hit the brakes as hard as possible. But you look for something to get your orientation back. You look for a, a mailbox or a sign or some kind of a, a, um, a edifice, a building, something that isn't moving, something with a fixed foundation that tells you if you're moving relative to that thing. Well, I was on a river everything is moving. There are no fixed foundations on the river. If I'm on the boat and the boat is moving, that's not going to help me. And the river is in a constant state of flux and in flow. So the nausea and the, and the sort of panic lasted for quite some time. It was when I looked at the distant shore and I began to see it becoming larger and larger in my field of vision. That's when the confusion cleared up and I could see, ah, we are in fact mo moving and I was able to get my bearings. I tell you this because I think that culture today even our own lives, is in the river. Nothing is fixed with to relative to anything else anymore. Everything seems to shift by the day. Think of the questions we're asking ourselves now. Think of the things we actually don't think have solid answers. We once did think they had solid answers, and now we don't. Questions like, what does it mean to be human? This is an obvious and easy answer. It seemed to be that for quite some time, but now it's no longer easy. It's up for grabs. There is a movement called the transhumanism movement, which doesn't have anything to do with gender. It has, has to do with modifications to human beings that started off with gene therapy, where people were taking, saying, how can we modify DNA and genes either in the womb or outside the womb and inject things into people to cure them of various kinds of blindness or other illnesses? Wonderful. Wonderful kinds of things. But then they said, can we take it further? Can we actually edit genes for people who aren't sick? and make their eyesight better, make them taller, have their hair not fall out, which I wouldn't mind, but um, little things like this, and then like adding appendages, like bionic this and bionic that. This is actually a real movement. This is not science fiction. This has become science fact. We're asking ourselves, is human good enough? Can I be more? So being human is, a, is no longer a solid issue anymore. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? What does it mean to be married? When does life actually begin? When does a human person actually acquire rights? When do they lose those rights if they age out of the system, as it were? Can we 
end someone's life if they don't want it to be ended or if they do want it to be ended. All these questions now are swirling about. And you think about the political upheavals we're seeing and all the racial issues we're seeing and the sexism and the Me Too movement. A lot of things are great movements because they're causing us to rethink bad old habits, but we're also beginning to rethink that which was once foundational as well and will lead us into a very serious problem. All of that to say, can you guys hear me, by the way? Am I, am I OK in the back? All of that to say that we are now in a situation where everything's flux and everything's floating, and we're getting the anxieties of that, but we still want to stay in the river. We don't want to be on dry land. We don't like the sure foundation. We actually get our, we have our sea legs now, as it were. And when we get to dry land, we feel queasy on dry land. But all these issues now, where people are actually asking themselves, what does life really mean? What am I? And do I, am I an organism? Am I a sophisticated chimp? Am I a meat computer, as I heard one atheist say? Or am I something different? Am I special in some way because I'm human? All these questions and the things, the uncertainties, are causing high levels of anxiety. Studies are showing now that the levels of anxiety among children between the ages of 8 and 18 are the highest they've been in decades. I want you to think about this for a moment. I look out at this crowd and I see that some of you are children of the 80s like me. And some of you have children who are children of the 80s. You're just figuring out who you are. You have a, a sacrosanct identity in Christ if you're a believer in Christ, but you're just figuring out you know, life as it were or your purpose and all these things. We're telling eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, and 10-year-olds, you get to pick what you are and who you are. And by the way, we will absolutely 100% reinforce that if by law, we have to force it upon you, we will. No wonder, no wonder the anxiety is there. Because if 40-year-olds are just figuring out who they are, how are we going to tell some 10-year-old, figure out who you are, and by the way, we're going to make sure it's permanent and sticks. Make that decision now. And the anxiety increases. And you begin to see all these sort of things happening where there's all this uncertainty. It reminds me of the 80s, by the way. I remember being a child of the 80s, and there was this uh, phenomenon. It was called Cold War neurosis or nuclear war neurosis, where children were waking up screaming in the middle of the night, having these nightmares that the United States and the USSR, back when there was one, the Cold War between them got nuclear hot very fast because someone decided to push a button. And there was a song that was written back in those days. It was called Land of Confusion by the band called Genesis. And it was remade a few years ago as well. But listen to the lyrics of that song talking about the age of confusion in the 80s. We look back at the 80s now and we think, look how certain they were back then. But the lyrics go like this, oh Superman, where are you now? When everything's gone wrong somehow, these men of steel, these men of power are losing control by the hour. That song was written 30 years ago. Could that song not be written today? You see, amidst all the confusion, you have these men of steel and these women of steel who are telling you, I have the answers. I'll give you what you want. Follow me and you'll have your heart's desire and all these various things. And they're claiming to have all this power, but they're losing control by the hour. We're awash in this river. We're awash in this culture of confusion where we've actually considered confusion to be a virtue now and clarity has now become a sin. What do I mean? I want you to think about this for a moment. When I talk about the ideas that are the biggest ideas in culture today, sexuality, morality, and religion, and if I say if you're sexually confused, you're automatically a hero. If you're morally confused, you're considered progressive. 
if you're religiously confused, you know, all paths lead to God. There's no one way that gets to God alone specifically. Well, then you're considered tolerant. Heroic, progressive, tolerant. But if you're sexually, you know, clear on this is the strictures, this is the way things ought to be done for various reasons, and here's why, that's considered bigoted. If you're clear morally, well, that's considered regressive. How dare you stand in the way of doing what I want? And if you're clear on religious matters, maybe there is only one way to God, and maybe there's good evidence to believe that God has provided a specific way, and it happens to be Jesus, well, that's considered intolerant. So this is, confusion has become a virtue, clarity has become a sin. Except in one way, we are very clear on one thing, and if you look to Twitter, if you look to television, you'll know this. If you don't agree with me, you're Hitler. If you don't agree with me, you're Lenin. You're Stalin, whatever it is. And it doesn't matter what I happen to believe, by the way. You can't be neutral. You can't even have a considered measured opinion. You can't say, you know what, I'm going to wait for the facts to come in. You can't do that. You can't wait. You have to have an opinion as strong as mine, if not stronger than mine, on my favorite topic. And if you don't have an opinion that shares mine, then you become some kind of despot or totalitarian or bigot or whatever it might be. Which is why we see this whole thing where the left is always telling lies or the, right, uh, or the right's always telling lies. And if you're a centrist, the right and the left are always telling lies. Everyone thinks the worst of everybody else because we're standing in the way of our autonomy of our preferences, of our feelings, of our desire to be in the river. Here's what I mean by all this. As if to prove the point about the confusion that's inherent in our society now, in 2016, Oxford English Dictionaries named as its word of the year, post-truth. Now, every year, Oxford Dictionaries names a word of the year. I think last year, it was toxic. It's a word that captures the ethos, the passions, what the culture cares about and what it's fascinated about for that particular year. And in 2016, especially at the end of the election cycle, the word of the year was post-truth. Now, if something is post-truth or someone has a post-truth mindset, when they elevate feelings and preferences over facts and truths, it's very important you get this definition down. You elevate feelings and preferences over facts and truths. Now, that's very different than a postmodern idea. See, we talk about postmodernism, and postmodernism is a fancy way to say there is no such thing as truth. And we sort of had this movement that started in the 60s and swelled in the 70s and 80s, got some ground in the 90s, and began to die its own death in the 2000s, only to have post-truth rise up in its place. But postmodernism was the idea that there is no such thing as truth. There is no objective truth independent of human opinion. All you have is your opinion, I have mine, and we're in conversation with each other. So the reason we want to get rid of truth is because if these guys say they have the truth, they'll try to impose it on these people, and that creates conflict and war. And we don't want that, so if we get rid of the idea of truth, no one will be in conflict anymore, which of course didn't happen. But you can reason with someone like that. So someone who says there's no such thing as truth, the, the classical response to that is to ask them this question, is that statement true? Because if the statement is true, then there are truths, and the statement is therefore false. But if the statement is false, why'd you say it? So it's self-defeating, which is why postmodernism is dying. But up from the ashes of postmodernism, we have post-truth. Notice what I said was different about it. Postmodernism says there is no such thing as truth, there's only opinion. Post-truth says that there is such a thing as truth, but my preferences and my feelings matter more. So I can acknowledge truth exists, but I simply say this to you. When you show me what the truth is, through arguments and facts, I simply say this. I don't care. 
How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? By the way, this is not a, a newish issue. This is a human issue. The Bible actually predicts this in its very first pages. Its very first pages, the Bible talks about the rise of the post-truth culture. Post-truth elevates feelings and preferences over facts and truth. So it says that they exist, but my preferences matter more. Look to the Garden of Eden story. What do you have there? The very first post-truth people were Adam and Eve. The truth of their existence was they were meant to be with God. He walks and talks with them in the cool of the day, the Bible describes. His relationship with them as very intimate and very personal. And he says, this is the reason you exist, to be in communion with me. There's only one thing you can't do. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat that fruit, in that day you will surely die. Well, they lived with that for who knows how long, and they never got tempted by it whatsoever until Satan comes along. And then he says, did God really say? And then he misquotes God. And then they misquote God back to him. And Satan knows, I've got them now because the truth really isn't in them. And he says, God knows you won't die when you eat that fruit. God knows that you'll become like God. And that's when the fruit suddenly became appealing. It became desirous. It became tempting when they realized what we've wanted all along is to be God ourselves. See, the truth was they were supposed to be with God. Their preference was to be God. And their preference mattered more than the truth. And they ate of that fruit. And they have suffered the consequences then. That post-truth world that elevates preferences over truth, the seeds of that were planted in the original garden. And now it's blossomed with its own trees and its own fruit in our day. And now we're living with that fruit. It's a human issue. It's not a Western issue. It's not a youth issue. It's not an old person's issue. It's a human issue. See, what's gone on, my friends, is that we've sacrificed clarity and truth on the altar of human autonomy. I'll unpack that for you for a moment. Os Guinness once said that you can judge the health of a culture by how it addresses or how it treats its chief virtues. That's a fancy way of saying this. What does a culture love the most and how has it expressed it? So when you think of America today, when you think of the US, when you think of the West, what is the chief virtue of Western society? Freedom. It's freedom. It's in all of our books. It's on all of our coinage. It's on all of our dollar bills. It's in our movies. We watch movies like Braveheart. We watch movies like The Patriot and, all, and Amistad and all these wonderful movies where freedom is one. And we stand up and we cheer because freedom is one. Freedom is our chief virtue. But we, we've, we love freedom, but we stopped actually expressing freedom quite some time ago. And now we're speaking about something called autonomy. And we think they're synonymous, that autonomy and freedom mean the same thing, and they don't. You see, autonomy comes from two Greek root words. Autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. So when you're autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. That means no one can tell you what you are, who you are, what to do, how to think, any of that stuff. Now that sounds like freedom, but that means there are no boundaries whatsoever. But do you see the problem with it? There's an inherent problem with autonomy. If preferences matter more than truth, and truth is no longer important to us, it's on the bottom shelf, and my preference matters more, and I'm autonomous, and you're autonomous, you're a law unto yourself, and so am I. And I can't tell you what to do, and you can't tell me what to do, and none of that. But my preferences are important, and your preferences are important. 
But let's say they're different. Let's say they're contradictory. Let's say they come together in society, as we're seeing today, and they clash. Now what happens? If truth doesn't decide between us who's right and who's wrong, or maybe we're both wrong, if truth isn't what decides between us, what will? It won't be truth. It'll be power. It'll be the person with the most guns or the loudest microphones. And that's what we're seeing today. So isn't it ironic that in our pursuit for unlimited freedom, we end up enslaved? Someone's going to lose the battle, and someone's going to be called a second-class citizen. It's already happening in our day today. We're looking for that. That's what we're looking for fundamentally. And that's what I want to bring to you this message is about. We're in a post-truth culture because we don't want freedom. We want autonomy. We want no limits to anything, not even what we are. And it's leading to chaos. Now, before I go on and talk too much about how to address it, let me just confess to you something. Some of you might know this. Many of you might not. I used to be a Muslim. For 27 years of my life, I was very proud of being a Muslim. I was raised in the United States, and I lived in an area that was um, uh, very non-diverse when I was growing up. There wasn't a whole lot of diversity. We were sort of the only ethnic people. There were a few families here, some Indians, uh, some Arabs, occasionally Arabs some here and there, but I'm from the Middle East, I'm from Lebanon, and so we have this sort of uh, olive skin, and we were sort of the dash of olive oil and the pot of rice, as it were, in my community. So we were exotic and cool. It's like, oh, what do you guys believe? What do you Muslims believe? They'd say it like that, and it was kind of funny. So I'm like, that's not how you say it, but that's okay. You're white. Um, uh, so then we would engage all the time, and I would have these discussions with people about why are you a Christian? Because Christians were low-hanging fruit, at least people who said they were Christians. And that was the thing back then. If you didn't really believe it or you went to church on, on Christmas and Easter and that's the extent of your religious sort of fervor or you prayed to God when you got a bad report from the, from the doctor and then you kind of forgot about him later on, you know, sort of a nominal Christianity, going through the motions kind of a Christianity, I considered you to be a Christian because my identity was being a Muslim, and therefore I thought Westerners also thought that their identity was in their religion. So I would engage in conversations. But along the way, as I was trying to knock the faith out of Christians, and they were low-hanging fruit, like I said, I was an equal opportunity faith knocker out or other. It didn't matter if you were a Christian, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Jew, it didn't matter to me. Um, but Christians were plentiful, as it were. As I was trying and I was starting to knock the faith out of some of these folks, a couple of these annoying people actually knew what they were talking about. And they came up to me and started answering my objections. But not only that, they began to give me some objections of their own. And I began to think, this is a little more reasonable than I'm comfortable with. I thought Christians were basically empty-headed morons. Or at least people who were really bright, who checked their brains at the door when they went into church. They were sort of transformed by the removal of their minds, not the renewal of their minds, as Paul says. But I began to see something. This stuff is actually true. It's really quite compelling that the Bible we have today is the Bible that was written early when the, when the, when the disciples wrote it down and the apostles wrote it down, Paul and the disciples and all these folks and of course the Old Testament as well, that Jesus claimed to be the son of God and he died on a cross as a matter of history and he rose from the dead as a matter of actual history, not a matter of mere hope, but a hope that's based on history. I began to see this really happened and I didn't like any of that because it was flying in the face of my own worldview. 
Islam denies the idea that Jesus is the savior of the world. It acknowledges him as a prophet, but it denies him being divine. It denies his cross and denies his resurrection. And I began to see all these things were increasingly true. But here's the problem. I was, even though I claimed to love truth, I was in one sense a post-truth person because my preference was that Islam was right and that everyone else was wrong. And the truth was I was beginning to have very serious doubts and I didn't want to think about those because they would fly in the face of my preferences. So as I look at this culture and I give it an assessment, it's not a those people out there kind of a thing. I can tell you right now, and maybe you can do this in your own heart as you sit here in these chairs or stand up wherever you're standing and ask yourself this question, have I elevated my own preferences over the truth? I can tell you for 27 years of my life, I did. And I went on a nine-year journey, a nine-year journey into the evidence for the Christian faith, into other religious systems, even into atheism, thinking someone has to have the truth, I have to find it somewhere. And the reality was this, I found all the answers, all the truth I could need to make a decision for Christ within two years, two or three years, that's all it took. But it took between seven and six and seven more years for me to come and bow my knee to Christ because the truth wasn't hard to find, but it was hard to accept because there are consequences. And so in one sense, my friends, I was as post-truth as anybody else. So I know of where I speak. So how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? I think there are a couple of ways we can deal with this. And then I want to move on to the hope. See, you can, you can, you can diagnose the problem, and you can show the, the consequences, like all the bad stuff that happens from this, but if you don't offer hope at the end of it, it's just empty criticism. It's just one more complainer, and I don't want to be that. I don't think you need that. The last thing you need is for one more guy to tell you how bad the world is. What you need is hope. We all do. But to understand the hope, you have to understand the thing that it actually cures. What are the consequences? I'm going to rush through a couple of them because I don't want to take too much time. And as you're sitting there, maybe thinking about what I'm saying, maybe thinking about when is it going to be done, um, whatever might be entering into your mind. I want you to think about something. Are you, in some sense, whether in large measure or in some small measure, a post-truth person? Have you actually elevated your preferences? And all of us do it. Have you elevated your preferences over the truth? And do you need the cure that Christ offers? The first consequence that happens when we sacrifice clarity and truth on the altar of our autonomy, the first casualty of that is a lack of wisdom. We suddenly lose all sense of wisdom and all sense of reason. I'll give you an example. Years ago, I was giving my testimony about how I became a Christian from Islam. And um, when I do that, I usually just talk about the truths of the gospel that began to show. I didn't reject Islam because it was false. I embraced the gospel because it was true. That isn't the same thing. So I didn't leave this, I embraced this. Now, because the gospel is true, and other things contradict it, by definition, those things that contradict the truth are, of course, false. But I talk about the beauty and the truth of the gospel, why I'm a Christian, not why I'm not something else. So there was a, a, a gentleman in the front row of this very large audience, and he was taking notes, like notes, fast, furious kind of notes, like smoke from the page, kind of where's the fire extinguisher kind of notes. And you typically know this is one of the first guys to come talk to you after you're done speaking, and he was. He came up to me almost immediately afterwards. And he said, hey, I, I really appreciated what you had to say today. I, I like, like your story. I also appreciated how you didn't disagree with Islam. And I said, uh, 
I think you missed the point. Um, because if I didn't disagree with Islam, I would have stayed a Muslim, and I would have saved myself and a lot of people I love a lot of pain. But go ahead, go ahead. What do you, what do you, what do you have to say? He said, can I show you something? Now, whenever you're a public speaker and someone says, hey, can I show you something? It's going to be a long conversation. And it was, but it was a good one. It was a very good one. I actually really liked the conversations. He had a diagram he had drawn. And in the middle of the diagram, he had his big capital T. Like he, made it, like he scribbled it like thick, bold-faced. He said, this represents the total objective truth. And there is such a thing. I said, good, so far we agree there's the truth. He said, but we don't know all of it. I said, I also agree with that. None of us knows all of it, because if I knew all the truth, then I would know everything. If I knew everything, I would be God. So, so far, we're on the same page that I'm not God. Good start. Um, he said, but everybody, and he had these little lowercase t's that were circling the truth, the capital T. And these little lowercase t's represented our truths. All of us have incomplete but equally valid versions of the truth. And we're all eventually going to get to a total enlightenment and all that, but right now we have equally invalid versions because they're equally incomplete. I said, equally incomplete and equally valid? He said, yeah. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. I said, so like Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Idi Amin, Adolf Hitler? I can keep going. These men all had equally valid versions of the truth to you? His words exactly. I can tell you that I don't prefer their version, but because mine's incomplete, I can't disagree with it either. My response was simply, buddy, if it's safe to disagree with one person in the world, Hitler is safe. You're telling me, so I, I want to probe a little more. Are you telling me, this is a very well-read man who knew quite a bit of stuff about history and philosophy. I said, are you telling me, honestly telling me, that you can't disagree with anybody? He said, that's right, I can't. I said, sure you can. He said, no, I can't. I said, you just did it. <laughs> I was a trial lawyer for 16 years. That helps. Um, now, I wasn't trying to humiliate the guy. I really wasn't. He's a very bright guy, but I wanted to show him that he was willing to sacrifice his God-given wisdom and his high intellect on the altar of his preferences. He prefers that all roads lead to God and therefore no one's going to be left out and that we don't have to do the hard work of actually finding out who's right and who's wrong. He was sacrificing the truth that we all can't be right. We have that slogan. You've heard it a million times, most likely. All roads lead to God. Have you heard this? Maybe you've even said it. Can I tell you this? It's well-meaning. It's the, the, the idea behind it is that we don't want to criticize anybody else's beliefs because that's offensive and all these things. So all roads lead to God. We're trying to pay respect to all different religious systems. Here's the problem. I've studied them all. I used to be a different one. And I can tell you this. It's a very disrespectful thing to say. Say all roads lead to God. Here's why. It does not take them seriously because not all roads even claim to lead to God. Buddhism doesn't claim to lead to God. It's inherently non-theistic religion. There is no God in Buddhism. They're not concerned with God. They're actually concerned with annihilation, that after you work off all your karma from previous lives, you become extinguished. You become nothing. That's the goal. Hinduism doesn't say that you get to go to God and be with God. It says that you are God. You just don't know it yet. Islam says you don't get to go to be with God, but you actually get to be in God's paradise, but he's not there. And then Christianity says, you get to be with God. They couldn't be more different. And if I were to tell a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, you all agree on the, on, on the fundamentals, I would insult every one of them because I don't take them seriously. You don't give them the dignity of difference. 
I take them far too seriously to say they all believe the same thing. But because my preferences matter more, and my, my desire for comfort matters more, I smooth over it all, and I don't go into it. But it has more than just the consequences of just one-on-one -on -one conversations. There was a video on YouTube in 2015, maybe you saw it, where there was a protest at the University of Missouri, the football players, the football team of a major Division I school organized a protest with a, a bunch of others uh, protesting racial injustice on campus. And because it's a protest, it's a public protest, so naturally you want the press to come. And if you don't have the press coming, then there's a bunch of guys sitting on a lawn complaining. You want your message to get out, so the press did come. But they had these so-called safe spaces where no press could go or whatever it was, which is ridiculous because you're on a public campus with a public protest, you're going to have the press come everywhere. So there's this video of a journalist from ESPN, a photojournalist, not interviewing anybody, just taking pictures, trying to snap photos, especially of the football players. And a woman jumps in front of him, and she starts trying to get, uh, block his view and trying to remove him physically from a public university. And she starts to say, I need some muscle over here. Who's going to help me get rid of this aggressor? Do you know what she teaches at that university? Journalism as part of the communications department. You can't get more confused than that. I presume she's a very bright lady. But the fervor took over, and she lacked the common wisdom to say, I think this person has a right, as freedom of the press, which makes her job even possible, to express themselves and to take photos at a public university. Number one, we lose sense of wisdom. And I'll go quickly to it, number two. There's a bunch of different consequences, but number two is the most dire one, I think, is that when we elevate our preferences over the truth and we look for autonomy and not freedom, what we lose in the process, what we sacrifice, is accountability and therefore a sense of human value. We lose accountability and then human value. I want you to think about this. If you're autonomous, if you're a law unto yourself, then no one can tell you what's what. You tell yourself. You're the, you're the captain of your own ship, as it were, and you have no boundaries. Therefore, there is no God above us. This is not a new idea. Protagoras said it centuries ago when he said, man is the measure of all things. There were no gods above us to tell us what's what. And if there were, they were just as petty as we were. And so their morality is no greater than ours. So we can tell ourselves who, what, and when we can do the things we want to do, and we can have our own morality and all these things. We've been saying that for thousands of years. There is no God above us, and so we are the determiners of all these things. The problem is, is that it's led to a very, very serious problem. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about the ingenuity we have now. This little black rectangle I pulled out of my pocket that we, for some reason, call phones still. They're computers that make calls once in a great while. I mean, if you're below the age of 18, have you made a call on one of these things lately? <laughs> no one calls on these things, and you're like, look at that old guy making a call. Um, but this little machine has more computing power. This one machine, mine, not yours and all of ours put together, my one machine has more computing power than the, than the computers that took, sent the first rocket to the moon. Put together. I want you to ask yourself, with that kind of ingenious sort of invention and all of our education and all of our craftiness, have we come to some utopian society where we all believe the same thing and we're all getting along well? Ask anybody who's on the sharp end of the stick of sexism how that's gone. Ask anybody who's been the victim of racism how that utopian society of the educated is going for them. 
Ask anybody of the persecuted church. They are now really ready, ready to confirm a genocide is happening around the world. It is not a mild persecution. Even the BBC said that there is a genocide or at least something near a genocide happening to Christians around the world. With all of our technology and all of our so-called enlightenment, we're still horrible to each other. And yet someone like Tom Flynn, a secular humanist, can say that through scientific inquiry and reflective thought, we can reach a rough agreement concerning values. A rough agreement concerning values, are you kidding me? The protests happening on campus, the injustices happening on our streets, the governmental issues we're seeing in other parts of the world and maybe even locally as well, where you're being sort of ran, ran into a corner because of your religious beliefs. You're telling me we reached this rough agreement concerning values? I'll tell you what we've reached. We've simply reached an agreement on the value of being rough. That's what we've reached the agreement on. It reminds me of that poem by Alexander Pope, brilliantly stated so long ago, so many decades ago, but he was almost prophetically dictating what was going to happen in our culture today. It's called Essays on Man. There's a little stanza in the middle of it that I want to recite for you that tells you exactly where we're going. He says, go wiser thou, and in thy scale of sense, weigh thy opinion against providence. Call imperfection what thou fancy as such. Say here God gives too little, but there too much. Destroy all creatures for thy sport or gust. Then claim if man's unhappy, then God's unjust. If man alone engross not heaven's highest care, alone made perfect here, immortal there, snatch from his hand the balance and the rod, rejudge his justice, become the God of God. In pride, in reasoning pride, our error lies. All quit their spheres and rush to the skies. Pride is still aiming at the blessed abodes. Men will be angels, angels will be gods. Aspiring to be gods, angels fell. Aspiring to be angels, men rebel. And who but seeks to invert the laws of nature sins against the eternal cause. We are trying to become God. And secular people, secular people are noticing the consequences. Listen to the words here of Yuval Harari. Pardon me, it's a longer quote, but honestly, it's something you really need to hear it shows you what's going on in the world today, and I think there's a cure for all of it. You can almost see the cure in the complaint. This is what he says. Secular atheist Jew, in his book Sapiens, says 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens was still an insignificant animal minding its own business in a corner of Africa. In the following millennia, it transformed itself into the master of the entire planet and the terror of the ecosystem. Today, it stands on the verge of becoming a god, poised to acquire not only eternal youth, but also the divine abilities of creation and destruction. We are more powerful than ever before, but have very little idea of what to do with all that power. Worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever before. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company. We are accountable to no one. We are consequently wreaking havoc on our fellow animals and on the surrounding ecosystem, seeking little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. Is there anything more dangerous than irresponsible and dissatisfied gods who don't know what they want? We don't know what we want anymore. We talk about freedom, and we confuse it with autonomy. We don't know. I think the Bible has answers. We lose wisdom, and we lose accountability, and human value, because think about this. If someone else is just an autonomous machine just like you are, and all you are is a meat computer or a sophisticated chimp brought upon by random chance and uh, evolutionary processes or whatever it might be, why not eliminate somebody who you see is inferior to you? Because Nature doesn't make us all equal. Is there something about us that's equal? You bet there is. 
It doesn't have anything to do with how tall you are, how fast you are, how smart, how strong, none of that. It has to do with an inherent quality each one of you bears that you can't even take away from yourself. It is the image of God. Without it, up for grabs. But with it comes true freedom. Let me sustain that for you for a moment, and then we'll move on to the end. When I look at this situation, I think what the culture needs is to get back to that idea of what freedom actually is. And I think the pages of Scripture, the pages of the Bible, actually give it. Now, some say, no, no, we can't go to the Bible for this stuff because the Bible is this old, dusty book written by old, dusty people trying to control your behavior by invoking God. They don't like the way you have sex, so that's icky. So I'll use God to have you stop doing that. Or I don't like women, so I'll use God to say men are more uh, are superior. That's what the culture believes, that the Bible is not a freedom-promoting uh, book, but a freedom-prohibiting book. It couldn't be more wrong about that. The Bible does stand against human autonomy because autonomy leads to chaos. If you are a law unto yourself, and so am I, it's going to be bedlam. But the Bible does not inhibit freedom. It actually tells us what freedom actually is. And it's not the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, or say or think or be whatever you want, whenever you want. There is a freedom, but it does have to have at least some boundary. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. When we were buying our house <clears throat> uh, years ago, I, I have three great kids now. Um, and I've always had three great. It's not like I had less before or more before. The three ones I have and have always had have always been great. If you're watching, I love you guys. Um, but back when we were buying our house, I only had one. My oldest, my son, was almost a year old. But Nicole and I, we wanted to have a, a family, and we, so we've got this house, we're looking at this house, we didn't buy it yet, we're looking at it thinking, man, the backyard is beautiful, it's big, it's very spacious, kids can run around in this and really enjoy themselves, especially for the neighborhood we were living in. Um, this is great. The problem is this, it backs up to a main highway, like a main road, and there are cars and trucks whizzing by all the time. We were nervous. The kids would play and the ball would bounce in the street and kids being kids won't look and bam, a truck pulverizes them. How do we get them to enjoy the purpose of the backyard? By putting a boundary. In other words, if there was no boundary, the kids wouldn't have the freedom to enjoy the purpose of that backyard. But because there's a boundary, not too many, just enough, the kids could enjoy the purpose of that backyard. Freedom has to have some limitations. And the greatest limitation that doesn't kill freedom, the greatest restraint is self-restraint. And we don't know anything about that nowadays. But the Bible actually offers us a solution. I'm going to read a passage from Scripture, one that you've probably heard before. And in fact, Ravi said it on the video. And I think someone like Mike, who got baptized in this very tub, can attest to the truth of this Scripture, seeing what he went through. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 36, it says this. Jesus says to those who had believed in him. They believed him now. They were already his followers. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you catch it? You will know the truth, not feel it. You will know it, and the truth will set you free. He made a coupling. Did you see the coupling? Truth and freedom are coupled. The culture says preferences couples to freedom. Jesus says, no, truth is coupled to freedom. Now, their response to him is nothing short of hilarious. They say this to him, 
We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you shall become free? You're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone? Are you kidding? You celebrate your liberation from slavery to Egypt, which you were enslaved to for 400 years, and you celebrate this every single year at the Passover. And by the way, do you know when they're saying that? While they're under Roman occupation. The whole perception of reality becomes skewed when your preferences matter more than the truth. But Jesus, in his inevitable way, says this to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, meaning the son of God, remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, did you catch it again? He said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you know the son, the son will set you free. The son is the truth. Now, you can't just say that kind of a thing and leave it sitting there. I'm the truth that sets you free? Well, who says you? you got to prove that. I've spent so many years of my own life not wanting it to be true, that Jesus was the source of truth and the source of freedom. But then you see the resurrection. I've debated many an atheist on this. I've debated Muslims on this. Go on the YouTube and look at my debates. You can see the incredible evidence for the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. People often ask me, why do you trust Jesus? Why not Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna or whatever it might be? Why him as the source of truth? And my answer is a very short and simple one. Jesus rose from the dead, and a guy who rises from the dead has credibility. Now, this is important. I don't say that with pride. I'm not happy that there's a way to God because he happens to be my way. I'm not saying amen to that because, well, my way happens to be the right way. No, I'm just glad there's a way at all. And he's provided that through the sacrifice of his own son for my sins. A young man walked up to a microphone at Yale University. Ravi and I were speaking there. And at the end of the, end of the open forum, he said, I see it. I get how truth leads to freedom. But this whole Jesus part of the equation, this whole Jesus variable, how does that lead to it? How does he help lead us to freedom? Truth can, I get that, but how is he the truth that leads to freedom? And then he said this, remarkable, he said, and does the resurrection have anything to do with it? I'm like, I'm so glad you asked. Here's what I said to this young man. I said, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you were made in God's image. You were made in his image. That means something. That is a very different statement than you are a product of random evolution that you are what Lawrence Krauss says, the pollution of the universe, or as what one atheist called you, a meat computer, or a sophisticated chimp. That's what the reductionist ideas are. So he says you're made in God's image. They say this, he says this. He died and rose from the dead, which means I think he's right. But I'll tell you this, why did he die and rise from the dead? He died and rose from the dead because you're made in God's image. And because you are a free creature, it's like I am, you're a free human being, you've used that freedom to actually go into autonomy and go away from God and say, I don't need you, I want me. And you've created a gap in the relationship. It is now severed because he's a just God and he can't look on your sin and say, no big deal. He gives you the dignity of saying that your actions actually matter to him. And because your actions actually matter, 
There has to be a payment for your and my sin. If there was no payment, then your sin means nothing. And your actions mean nothing. But because your sins and my sins, both your good deeds and your bad deeds, whatever it might be in your life, actually affect the divine. Do you know what kind of a compliment that is to you and to me? He pays a price on the cross because you can't pay it. And I can't pay it. Can't do it. Cannot simply pay that price. But he sends his son and sacrifices him on the cross. He makes the payment because you know how valuable something is by what you're willing to pay for it. And I can say that you have an infinite value because God paid an infinite price for you because you are bearing God's image. So now you have true freedom. You have the freedom to be what you were supposed to be, a free human being who has communion with the living God. You see, freedom is not the ability to do what you want, whenever you want, in whatever way you want. True freedom is this. It's the ability to do what you want based on what you should. That's the moral law from God. In accordance with what you are, that's your purpose. And that's to be with God. You know, he, he liked that answer. And I've seen people come to faith left, right, and center over it. Because I think that what they see is there's hope in the gospel itself. I could go on and on, but time runs short, and I don't want to keep you out here. And if the mosquitoes are starting to bother you, maybe they're more annoying than I am at this point. But maybe that might change in a minute if I keep going for too long. But I want to share this with you, and then I'm going to close, and I'm going to invite you to something. I want you to prepare your hearts as I start to close this, because I, it's important. Because I, in a crowd this size, in this kind of a gathering, I know most of you are believers and probably go to this church. But there are some of you who are believers who even go to this church, who've been playing at it for some time now. And you've been doing a good job of playing at it, but you've been in bondage to your own autonomy. You've elevated your preferences over the truth, and I'm going to invite you to raise your hand, not now, soon, to join me in a prayer, to be free of that, to know the truth and have the truth truly set you free. Some of you aren't Christians. Or you were raised in a Christian family, but it's meant really nothing to you. And today is the day. Today is the day. This rain-free, beautiful setting, now. But you haven't been understood. You've not understood yourself, and no one understands you either, the struggles you go through. Reminds me of that poem that Thomas Bracken wrote. When he wrote that poem, Not Understood, he says, Not understood, we move along asunder. Our paths grow wider as the seasons creep. Along the years, we marvel and we wonder why life is life, and then we fall asleep, not understood. Not understood, how many cheerless uh, breasts are aching. For lack of sympathy, ah, day by day, how many noble hearts are breaking. How many noble spirits pass away, not understood. Oh God, that men would see a little clearer, or just judge less harshly when they cannot see. Oh God, that men would draw a little nearer to one another, then they would draw nearer to thee, and then be understood. There's only one way for you to be understood, my friend. Only one way. And it isn't horizontal relationships, because they're just as lost as you. I don't complete my wife. Jerry Maguire was wrong. I don't complete her, and she does not complete me. He completes me so I can serve her. That is the truth. 
And we all recognize this, this need to find our true purpose and then to have that communion with God so that we have true freedom to do what we should and what we want becomes what we should. It's glorious, my friends. Nothing will give it to you. This little machine will not give it to you. I mean, we're addicted to these things now. You ever have your phone go off and the charger is gone and you, it's, it's dead and you, there's no charger around? Don't you get twitchy? This is an autonomy machine or is this a slave, a slave device? I mean, we call these things Alexa and Siri and whatever else we call them. We give them names now, but what do we do with them? We get jealous of our friends based on their Instagram posts and the life they're leading that we're not. We look at things we should not be looking at. We objectify women by putting them in positions where they will actually satisfy our most base instincts. So we personify and humanize these little objects so we can objectify human beings with them and say that we're free. No, it's only Jesus who can do it. There's a band called Crash Parallel. It's a Canadian band, a secular Canadian band. They wrote a song called Rain Delays. And they point this out, how we've been searching for things to fulfill us that only make us cry and leave us hollow in the end. And I know you've done it, because I've done it. I know you've done it. You've searched for the things that to make you feel free, to make you feel whole, or I got good enough stuff. I got a good spouse, they're great. I got some cars, I got some, my kids aren't on drugs and doing, yeah, it all sounds fine until it comes crashing down in some way. And then it's all gone. This is what they say in their song, Rain Delays. They say, sleepless nights and endless days and mini skirts and serving trays waking up from rain delays, selling sex for pocket change, and living off the alcohol with no one but a cab to call, lost inside a bathroom stall, this carbon copy life withdrawal. And driving cars we can't afford, making sure we're never bored between coffee grinds and corner stores, and limousines and cigarettes and chasing dreams with fishing nets, and long weekends without regrets, while no one here is taking bets. I need someone to believe in, someone to fill this space with grace, to look into my eyes and touch my face, someone to make me belong, someone to make me strong, someone to make me alive. Secular band telling you that the stuff that gives you this so-called autonomy will not give it to you. It will make you weak, make you cry, make you feel alone. We need someone to make us alive. And I'll tell you this, there won't be another person who's just as lost as me. It's only the only one who's been perfect, who died and rose again. It's Christ. And he says this. He says this simply. We've been trying for 2,000 years as we elevated personal preferences over the truth to fulfill our lives with things that are neither personal nor true. And he offers you himself because in himself, truth is a person. So I'm going to ask you something. If you've needed this freedom I've talked about, if you have been looking for autonomy, but now you want real freedom, and you want to be found in Christ, or if you're someone who's even in the, in the, within the body of Christ and you've been struggling with this, and now you find it, you see it, you feel it, you want what Mike has, what a beautiful thing to see something brand new like that. And you want that? 
Let me just tell you this, you can be baptized today. Today, right now. And I'll tell you this, the Bible says this, that when you give your life to the Lord and you raise your hand like that, have you been baptized in an infant and you don't, remember, you don't remember it when you were an infant, you don't remember being baptized? You go into these waters and the old you goes down in the grave as Jesus did. And whereas he rose pure, you rise now as something brand new and the old you stays down there. When I got baptized, I remember it so well. I want to remember every second of it. And when I got baptized, I looked back into the pool to say, you're gone. That can be you today, right now. So I'm going to ask you to do this, friends. And when you, if you do this, they're going to rejoice with you. The believers in here can't wait to make you part of the family. And if you're a believer, by the way, and you've been struggling and you need this message of hope and clarity and the truth is more important, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. I'm going to ask you to do this. Today's the day. Raise your hand if you need this message. Raise it up. I see the hands. There they are. I see them. Raise the hands. There they are. If, you're, if you want to accept Christ today for the first time in your life as a real honest to goodness, I'm doing it for the first time. And I want to make this the rest of my eternity. Would you do it right now? Would you just raise your hand? If you're out there right now, I can't see everybody because of the lights. There's, one, there's a hand right there. Who's joining her? Who's joining her? Who's coming? Who's coming? There, there's other hands. I see them over here. I see them. You are being, the angels rejoice. Not just this crowd, the angels rejoice. This is the first day of eternity for you. This is your first day of eternity. I remember the joy I felt. You can feel it now. I'm so glad. Anybody else want to join them? I can't see too much. I'm sorry. Now, if you want to, I'm going to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I'm, I can't tell you how overjoyed I am right now. I'm so overjoyed. I want to pray. I want you to pray. If this is your first time coming to faith, I want you to pray in the same manner that you accept Christ as your Savior, that you recognize you're a sinner, that he has paid the price for you, and in him you're free because God raised him from the dead. We're going to pray that prayer. But I also want to do this. I don't know how this works, Pastor Bob, um, if they want to get baptized tonight, and if they want to, there's a pool. I don't know if you noticed that. We can do it now. So if you want to do that, Pastor Bob, you're going to be baptizing, I think. Come on to the front and do it, whether you've been baptized as an infant or you just come on to the front right now if you want to. Come on right now and we'll pray for you. I'll give you a second to do it. If you want to come and get baptized tonight. If you don't have the clothes, I think they take care of that for you here. Um, if you want to get baptized, come on down. I see some movement. Give you a little more time. But I know there are folks. You guys coming to get baptized? Come on down. Hallelujah. Fantastic. My friends, if you want to get baptized, you know, you don't walk alone. You do not walk alone. When I walked up to the baptism waters, I could feel Christ walking with me, my friends. You are not by yourself. And it's not awkward and weird. It's glorious and amazing. Are you coming to be baptized, sir? Hallelujah. Look at this. Let me just say this to you. I've been to a lot of universities, 10,000 people in the stadium sometimes, and I've seen people raise their hands and give life to Christ. It's been moving every time. For some reason, there's something going on right now in, inside of me, and maybe it's happening inside of you, maybe it's hovering in the air where something glorious and special is happening tonight. Right now, 
with you. Do not let this day go by without your opportunity to give your life to him and say, I am yours. I want to be, I want to do what I want in accordance with what you want so I can be what I'm supposed to be made in your image. This is the time. I'm going to pray. Here we go. I'm going to pray. If you raised your hand to receive Christ, pray with me. If you didn't raise your hand, but you wanted to, but for some reason you didn't, and you want to receive that salvation today, the hand is not the important thing, friends. It's the recognition that you need a Savior and He's it. Let's pray together, and then Pastor Bob's going to baptize this amazing lineup of people. And it's growing by the second, apparently, because God is good. Let's bow our heads. Great Heavenly Father, I am just in awe of the fact <clears throat> that I even have a voice to be able to speak about you in the first place. I'm in awe of the fact that you saved a skeptic like me, someone who did not want you to be who you are, who wanted to put you in a box that I preferred rather than the truth. And I thank you, Lord, that there are those in this audience today, there are those who are lined up to receive baptism, there are those who raised their hand, who are now in the family, because they have decided that they are going to follow what you want for them, and not therefore lay down their autonomy in exchange for freedom. They have freedom today. Thank you, God, for the freedom that they have today. And they have that freedom from sin, because you are the Son who remains in the house forever, and you have set them free, and that is true freedom indeed. So, Father, we pray. We pray this, and if you're making a question of faith for the first time, pray with me now. Father, we confess that we are sinners and that we have not lived up to what you have asked of us and we have betrayed the purpose for which we were created to be with you. We acknowledge that we have sought our own way and we are grateful, Lord, that you have shown us your way. Lord, we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord not only Savior, as wonderful as that is, but Lord of our lives, and we follow him. And that you, Father, raised him from the dead, having paid a price for us that we can never repay, but we will spend our lives trying to imitate the glorious self-sacrifice of the Savior. We confess our sins, we make you our Lord and Savior, and we submit ourselves to you in humble obedience and in joyous thanksgiving for eternal life that cannot be taken away and snatched away by anyone, Lord. You have bought us. You have bought us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you so much.